As I guess as you can tell if you're in the, in the Psalms class, Pastor Steve is not here. He's out with the flu. Um, so um, I, I got a text and asked, asked me to take the combined classes. So that's what we're going to be doing today. Uh, Pastor Dave's gonna, David's going to be preaching uh, uh, this morning and Jay Street is taking the evening service just so you know what the lineup is uh, for the day. Uh, and uh, uh, we're going to... Uh, we're going to continue on. Our, my class is, is studying First John, and uh, we're going to continue in First John. Here will kind of be a, a break from the Psalms for, for those of you who are in the Psalms class. And you may want to you may want to note if you haven't noticed already, there next week is a is a modified schedule. Uh, there will not be a Sunday school next week at all. Uh, there will be a morning a regular morning service. And then an early evening Christmas Eve service. It starts at 5:30, I believe. Yeah. And uh, uh, so, so that you kind of, kind of, that's my public service announcement for the morning. <laughs> uh, just so that you kind of know, uh, kind of know what's going on uh, this week and next week. So anyway, anyway, just to kind of for those of you who are not in the First John class, I thought it might be well just to give you a couple of things because we're we're already going into chapter five, which is the final chapter. Of First John, so we're pretty well winding it up, and this is winding up a section on love um, in this in this particular particular morning. We'll be winding up that section. It finishes in, in verse. Well, depends on which commentator you read. Either verse four or verse five. I put it verse five, but at any rate, at any rate, uh, uh, that's where where we're going to be going to from chapter four, verse twenty through chapter five, uh, verses one through five. Uh, that'll that'll be our text. But just to kind of give you a, a little bit of background, now John is at this juncture. John is an is a, is a, is well into his 80s, if not close to 90. Uh, the book was written in in the probably the late 80s somewhere AD. Um, the situation was he's the final remaining remaining apostle. All the rest of the apostles have gone to their reward. And he's the only one left alive. And uh, he's uh, writing from this particular book. He is writing from Ephesus. And uh, uh, he, uh, uh, he is writing because there, there are a number of, of issues that are going on that are challenging the believer's security, their, their, uh, their understanding of their, their uh, place in Christ as, as being secure. And as a result of that, he writes a book uh, that uh, tells them, or it, it, it literally gives them a number of tests. Uh, you, some people outline this verse with two tests. I don't, I don't really take it as tests. I take it as assurances. But uh, nevertheless, he, uh, he, uh, he, uh, that they can buy these things. If these things are true about you, then you know you are. That's really what it amounts to. You know you're a believer. But the other side that's going on during all this is there is a brewing heresy. Uh, it's not full-blown yet. It's in its infancy, uh, but in the next two centuries, it'll ravish uh, the church, and it, it will be the, uh, the subject of much of the writing of the early church fathers of, uh, of, uh, of fighting against it. And it's, it's the heresy of Gnosticism, and, and uh, it is peppered throughout this book the way John makes certain statements to assure the believers uh, that Jesus is the Christ, because basically the 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 uh, tenet of Gnosticism was 
that there was this group of people within the church who were super saints. They had super knowledge, far above us average common folk who just didn't have the mental capacity to comprehend all of the truths of Scripture. And, and these guys did, and to some they had even achieved, uh, some had even claimed to achieve a state of sinlessness. But the one mark that, that went through all of them was they denied the deity of Christ, which you're going to see in this text. John makes it very clear. That is what marks a Christian, that he, that he understands who Jesus is, the God-man, God in the flesh, the incarnate God. That's, that's going to be the, 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 the item that runs through this. There were two, two primary forms of Gnosticism, like every heresy. It had all kinds of little offshoots and that kind of thing. We're not, we're not too interested in that stuff. But basically, there was two, two basic forms. One form believed that, uh, that, uh, uh, that Jesus basically was a prolonged theopony, that he wasn't real. He was, uh, if you will, a ghost. Uh, and that... Uh, he just, uh, he came and he was here and, and he went. But in that, of course, there is no salvation, if that is true. But the one that really strikes and the one that is actually going to be addressed as we go through um, this particular text this morning is uh, Serinthian Gnosticism, which basically was the belief that this couple by the name of Mary and Joseph had a son named Jesus by natural birth, and that this guy, Jesus, when he was baptized by John, the Spirit of God came upon him, the Spirit of the Christ came upon him, and at the crucifixion, before he died, the Spirit of Christ left him. Once again, there is no salvation, if that is true. And he was not the God-man, he was just a man who the Christ inhabited, I suppose you would say, for a, for a time period. So those are, the, those are the issues that are going on behind this book. And of course, to the, to, to the people in the churches that were hearing this stuff, because these guys had infiltrated the church, of course, and they were teaching in the church. This wasn't like the Gnostic church down the street. They were in the assemblies and teaching this stuff. Is Many of them were shaken in their, in their faith and, 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 and then in their belief and, and in their security and their salvation. So John is going to address that. So that's where we're, that's that's the backdrop. Also, just so that you know, John is, is kind of an interesting writer. He writes in black and white. Uh, there is gray area, but he writes in black and white. It's this or it's that, you know. And and but then he goes back and he makes comments like First John one nine, if you sinned, you know, because he basically makes a statement that there is no sin in you or there should be no sin in you. But then he he comes back and and he softens that with the with the teaching that. Uh, we have an advocate with the Father for that sin. He, do, he doesn't teach sinless perfection. But it almost sounds that way sometimes because he's so black and white. And then the other feature of it is he, he doesn't, uh, he's not like Paul. He's not line on line, precept upon precept. He's a spiral teacher. He picks up a theme and he builds on it here and he builds on it here. And you'll kind of see that as we go through because we're going to go back to other chapters where he made the same claim that he's made here in a different way. So, but... Uh, but uh, uh, that's, that's another of the features of, of 1 John. And then another feature is he very often, as he is concluding one thought, he makes a transitional verse that can apply to either side, which we're going to start and end with one of those this morning. Uh, because we concluded last week in our class with verse 19. 
And we're probably going to, and we're going to begin this morning by a quick look at verse 19, because it really introduces is what we're looking at today. And verse 5 sums up what we're looking at today, but introduces what we'll be looking at next, or not next week, the week after, in, in verse 6. So that's just some of the, the features that uh, we find in 1 John, uh, just to let you know. So before we begin, let's, uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Our Father and our God, we, we just give you thanks this morning. We thank you for this time to, uh, to come together. And we ask, Father, that your Holy Spirit would superintend us as we turn to your word and that our study of your word would be a true worship, honoring and glorifying your name. And we ask that the Spirit would illumine our minds that we might understand and comprehend what you, through your Spirit, had the Apostle John write for us that we might be drawn closer to Jesus, we might know you better, Uh, we might be more secure in our salvation and understand who you are more fully. And we thank you and we give you the praise and all the glory in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay, so first of all, let's just, uh, we'll, we'll move in at verse 4, verse 19, just to, just to give some, a little bit of introduction. Verse 19 says, We love because he first loved us. It's a flat-out statement John makes here. He says, we love because he first loved us. He says, God is the initiator of love. Man is the reciprocator of that love. Our love is based on the fact that God loved us. We didn't love him. He loved us. That's, that's, That's what John is saying here. In our natural state, we were, we were, we were enemies to God. We were foreign and alienated from him. We didn't seek him. But he loved us. Incidentally, throughout all this chapter, through, all out through chapter 4 and into these first verses of chapter 5, love and all of its derivatives are agape. It's the God love. It's the divine love. It's the self-sacrificing love that places value on another, whether they have any value or not. That's, that's the love that is to- spoken of all the way through here. It's not sentimental love. It's not emotional love. It's an act of the will. It's an act to say, you are you I place value on you and I give on your behalf John 3:16 that's that's the that's the idea here and it says that that love originates with God and it is to be copied by us those whom he has saved are to copy his love that's 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 what he's telling us here and he and he uh, and he, and he goes uh, we said this put it this way he says as for us let us be loving because he himself first loved us. That's, that's what this says. We're to love because he loved. That's the idea. The idea is, 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 is God is the one who inspires love within believers. Well, actually, in fact, it gives them the ability to love is really the idea. And, and, uh, and, and love, and our love for the brethren, basically, is what he is going to show throughout this. Is, is a result of God-inspired love within us, and it shows, it shows a grateful heart to him for the love he's shown to us in Christ. That's, that's, what, he's, that's what he's wanting us to understand as we, as we come into this. Smith, in his commentary, wrote this, The thought is that the amazing love of God in Christ is the inspiration for all the love that stirs in our heart. It awakens within us an answering love, a grateful love for, for him manifesting itself in love for our brethren, in verse 11, he wrote, in verse 11 of chapter 4, he wrote, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. 
That's, that's, the, that's the thought that he comes in as he introduces, as he, introdu- as, as, uh, as he comes into his final thoughts on love in, in, or the firm, uh, in this section in chapter 4, verse 20 and 20, uh, 21, where, we're gonna, where, where we want to begin our, our, really begin our study today. And he says this in verse 21, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In verse 21, and this is the commandment that we have from him, that, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So he begins by just saying something. He says, if someone says, that's the idea. Uh, it could have been transferred anyone, or it could be transferred this way. It could be explained this way. Suppose someone was to say. You know, it's not... It's, it's, it's basically just making a, a generalized statement. If someone comes up to you and says, I love God, that's, that's what it's saying here. That's what he's saying here. But he, he goes on and he says, but, but if he does that, and his life demonstrates that he hates his brother, he's a liar. That's the simple truth. If someone says, I love God, but I hate another Christian, he's a liar. What is he a liar about? He's a liar about the fact that he loves God. That, that's the indication here. That's the indication that John is making. As I said, John is black and white, no room for gray. You either are or you aren't. That's what he says here. He says, if someone says I love God and he hates his brother, he's a liar. <clears throat> it's likely here, although John doesn't, doesn't specifically say this, uh, given the the time frame and given the era it's likely this is directed at the gnostic teaching because the gnostic teaching had no respect for non-gnostics for those who were in the assembly but hadn't achieved their level of enlightenment if you will which was no enlightenment at all in actuality but for those who those who had who had come to that point uh, those gnostics they would have looked down on all the rest of us uh, they would have despised us, and in fact, they did. And that's, that's what, uh, probably what John is addressing here. Uh, those who, who come into the church and claim that they love God, and they're close to God, and they know God, and all this kind of stuff, but yet they treat you like junk, they're liars. They look down on you, they mock you, those kind of things. They're out-and-out out liars. Notice, Chapter 1, verse 6, John wrote, If we say that we have fellowship with him, yet we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not know the truth. Now, basically, he's saying the same thing in a different, different form here in, cha- in chapter 1 of verse 5. <clears throat> love again is agape, and you notice he he, he uses that word here. If we say we love God, but we hate, incidentally, these are both present tense verbs, which basically means that they're a continual action. In other words, the pattern of your life is to love God, or the pattern of your life is to hate your brother. That's, that's what he's saying here. He's saying the one who says, I continually love God, but continually hates his brother, is a continual liar. That's, that's the reality of what John is saying here. Uh, 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 that's a real contrast here. It's, it's opposites. In other words, he says the opposite reality of your life is, complete, is 
excuse me, the, the reality of your life is completely opposite to your profession. That's what, that's what, he's, that's what he's saying in this point. The love for God is not some warm feeling, but it's demonstrated by action. That's what agape is. It's an action word. It's not a, it's not a sentiment. It's not a feeling. It's an action. It's played out in reality. John 3.16, once again. And, both, and you notice here, too, that it indicates to us that our love for God is both vertical and horizontal. That's, that's what he's saying here. If you love God, you're going to love his people. That's, that's the idea that he's expressing here. If I truly love God, then I love all of you. I don't know all of you, but hopefully I love all of you. And, and it comes back. But at any rate, at any rate, that's the idea here. It's both, it's both toward God and it's toward fellow believers. It's, toward, it's towards others. Chapter 1, verse 6. That's what he said there. Which was not true of the Gnostics. Because they would have looked down on all of us who weren't of their enlightened group. Uh, that's the idea. And then you would say, well, what's the reason for this? Uh, we might think, what, what, why would this be true? Well, I think there's, there's basically three reasons. We're going to hit them in a couple of places here. But the first reason is, is that mankind is created in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1, verse, uh, verse 26 through 27, basically tells us that God, in the original creation, in his original state, Man was created in the image of God. He was a reflection of God, and he was to reflect God. Ultimately, that was the idea. Now, yes, chapter 3, there was a fall, but the image of God didn't go away. It stayed there. The, the, the theologian Duivier says it was radically darkened, but it didn't disappear. So, in other words, all of us as fellow believers are image bearers. All mankind is image bearers. So there is to be a love, in another place he tells us that we're, we're, to, we're to love everyone, but especially the brethren. So we're to have a love for mankind in general, but especially a love for those who are within the family of God. That's, that's the idea here. James, James chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, uh, James wrote, he's talking about the tongue in this particular context, but he makes an interesting statement here. He says, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless and evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the image and likeness of God. Understand what James is saying here. How can that be? Uh, that can't be within, within the believer. Uh, the mouth that he praises God with can't, cannot curse God's image bearers. That's ultimately what he's saying here. That, that's the idea. So, so the first reason, and, and, it, and it is a central reason, is, is that we are all created in the image of God. And therefore, we are to express the love God has for mankind. God so loved the world. Um, and then he goes on and he says, he who habitually hates is, equals a liar. It, notice in chapter 2, verse 4, he makes, he makes, he makes this statement. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a, is a liar and the truth is not in him. The same kind of an idea here. He, he basically is saying, he, he, is, he is saying here 
the one who habitually hates is a liar. Incidentally, the word hate is this particular Greek word for hate, which means that. It means to hate. Um, uh, it, 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 it's used ten times in the New Testament. And of those ten times, seven of them are used by John. Three in his gospel, four here in 1 John, three are used by Paul. Once in, once in Romans, once in Timothy, and once in Titus. So it's, 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 it's a unique Bible word, uh, a biblical word. Uh, and he says they hate, and it's a habitual hate. That's the way it's presented here. They go on hating. It doesn't let up. And then secondly, I think another reason that comes into this is because as believers, and especially as related to the household of faith, uh, we are to love because we are all children of God. Chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not been manifest as yet what we will be. We know that when, we, uh, when he is manifest, will we be like him because we will see him as he is. In other words, he is saying there, we all are related spiritually. We have the same spiritual DNA, if I can say that. That may be heretical, but nevertheless, if I can say that. If I can say that. We have the same spiritual DNA. It's from God. And therefore, God who loves is to be reflected in his children. That's the idea here. We should carry on the family, not tradition, that's not the word I want, the, the family uh, the family heritage, if you will, or the, ham- the family distinctiveness, if you will. I, I, you know, I have six children, and uh, all of them, to some way or another, reflect some of me and some of Kathy. The ones that are more like Kathy, I always got along with better. The ones that were more like me, I didn't. Uh, but uh, uh, I was harder on them because I knew their faults, you know. Uh, and the ones that were like Kathy, well, you know, there can't be anything wrong with them. Uh, but uh, but at any but at any rate uh, but at any rate uh, uh, there are family distinctives you know that's the word I was looking for distinctives uh, there are family distinctives and and if you have children you know this you've seen this some of them they you you see them doing things you did my uh, my son-in-law the other a few months ago uh, my daughter whose name is Dina he uh, she was doing something that was very much like exactly the way her mother behaves and handles things, and he called her Kathleen, you know. And it was like, what? <laughs> you know? But at any rate, that's, that's the bottom line here. Uh, God, who is, is by his distinctive character love, should be seen in his children. That's, that's what the text is. That's, that's another reason uh, for, this, for this truth. Ephesians chapter 2, uh, yeah, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, we would be in trouble if I went to 2. Uh, anyway, chapter, or I would be, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse, starting at verse 1, verses 1 and 2. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice and a, fragr- a, fagr- a fragrant aroma. Uh, that's the idea here. You understand? Love here had action. That, that's the point. Uh, the distinctives of God is he loves, and because he loved, he acted. And he acted in love. 
That's, that's, that's the idea of agape. And that's what, he's, that's, what, that's what he's suggesting to us here. That's the idea. And then he, then he goes on, and he goes, he goes on in the text, and he, and, uh, 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 he, he, goes, he goes on, and he, and he says, he says how, can it, how can it be that, uh, that you can claim to, to know God, whom you've never seen, and hate his image bearer who you're looking at. How can that contradiction be? How can you do both? How can you claim to love God and hate his child? Uh, that's, that's ultimately what he's saying. What he's saying to the mirror. Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a contradiction in John's mind and in the mind of the Holy Spirit who had John pen that. That's a contradiction. How can you hate the person sitting next to you? Hopefully you don't. But how can you hate the person sitting next to you and claim you love God? That's, that's what he's saying here. And you do this habitually. You know? I think this, uh, maybe, maybe uh, this might be self-serving, but uh, uh, maybe this says something for uh, after the service is over and you roast the speaker, you know, at, at Sunday dinner. How can you do that? You know, how can you do that? That's, that's the idea. But it, but it comes right down to the people right next to you in the pew. That's the idea. Because love is an action. Love places value on that person. And then he, then he goes to verse 21. And in verse 21 he says, And this is the commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should, also, should love his brother also. In verse 21. And he basically reinst- is a reinstatement of Matthew 22. In Matthew 22 which I bet you with, within a year and a half, Pastor Steve might get to. Uh, Matthew 20, uh, verse 37, it says this, And he said to them, You shall love the Lord... Well, it, the, verse 36, the, uh, 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 the Pharisees come to Jesus and said, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he says to them, You shall love the Lord with all, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And this is the greatest and foremost commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang the whole law and prophets. You know, that's, that's the statement here. He's saying that's the commandment. The commandment is love God and love your neighbor. That's, that's the commandment. Uh, he, he takes that from Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19. And he stresses, and John here is stressing, is stressing um, the second part in verse 39, Leviticus uh, and Leviticus 19:18, that you should love your neighbor as yourself. So now we have our third reason why we're to, we're to follow this. God said so. It's a command. It's an actual command. So we have three reasons. Because your neighbor is an image bearer just as you are. Your neighbor is a fellow child of God, a member of the, of the a spiritual family from which you have your being. And thirdly, God said to. Right? That should be enough reasons, I would think. John Stott wrote in his commentary, he says, It is easy to deceive oneself. The truth, however, is plain. Every claim to love God is a delusion if it is not accompanied by unselfish and practical love for your brother. So herein is the uh, first part of John's text uh, that we, we know, and basically what he's telling us here, you can be assured of God's love 
if you're demonstrating it, if your life demonstrates it habitually. This doesn't mean every moment, every second. It doesn't mean there isn't a time when you're mad at somebody. It simply means the consistent pattern of your life, the habitual pattern of your life, is to love. That way he can know he, lo- he truly loves God. That's the point here. And then he goes on in verses, in, verses, uh, in, in chapter 5, we'll run into chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, and he says, Knowing one is born of God. That's the next part, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone, <coughs> excuse me, and everyone uh, uh, who loves the one who gives new birth gives loves also the one who who has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and do His commandments. So here he here he he comes again, and he says this time he says he says to us he uses the word believe. Uh, John is, uh, believe is one of John's uh, favorite uses for faith. Uh, he only uses faith once, and it's in verse 4 in the entire epistle. The rest of the time he uses the word believe. So when John, John says something about, about believing, he is talking about the exercising of faith. That's what he's saying here. Uh, that's, that's the idea behind what he's saying. And, and he says, everyone who believes, everyone who exercises faith, um, and is is not, is everyone who exercises faith is born of God. Are children of God, as he said earlier, as we saw in the last is the last the last section. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Born is the verb. Uh, in the, in this particular context, it's the main verb. Everyone who believes is the subject. That's the subject here. Everyone who believes is born. That's the idea. Everyone who has exercised faith, the demonstration of that exercise of faith is the acknowledgement of who Jesus is. That's what he's telling us in this text. How do we know? Because everyone testifies or believes, has professed, and actually believes it's the heartfelt reality of who they are, It's been internalized into their very person that Jesus is the Christ. Christ, of course, which is Christos, which means the anointed one. And and with that name, he is saying, God became incarnate, the God-man. He took on flesh and he dwelt among us. That's the idea here. It's not just an intellectual acknowledgement, but it's a full acceptance of that fact and all that it implies. That's, That's the reality here that he wants us to understand. It implies the fact that it was necessary that he die on our behalf because we could not pay the debt. The substitutionary death is wrapped up in these words. All of those things are wrapped up in the fact that Jesus is the Christ. That's, that's what he's saying here. Uh, that's, that's the idea here. It's, it means that we understand and we accept that Jesus is the only means of salvation. And there is no other. And there is no other. It's the only way mercy can be dis, can be displayed, and and justice can be satisfied before God, is in His atonement. That's the reality of what John is saying here. John is saying everyone who believes that, and he puts all of the theology, all the Christology, if you will, into the words Jesus is the Christ. That's, that's what he's telling us here. 
And he says, that's the one who is born of God. That's the one who has experienced the new birth. And, and then he goes on to say, and everyone who loves the one who gives new birth loves the ones also who are born of him. So he's, he's coming back to the same point again. He's saying once again that, and all of us who have experienced the new birth have experienced the love of God. And having experienced the love of God, we should demonstrate that love of God to others. That's the flow here. That's that's what John is telling us. That's what he's wanting us to understand. Uh, We're we're to to understand this. And this is, of course, a complete refutation of of the Corinthians uh, theology. Uh, the, his Gnosticism. Theensius was, uh, was a guy who, he came to his prime, probably about 100 AD. He was around during John's day. He was already writing. He was branded a heretic. He believed two things. He believed, well, I, he believed more than this, but he believed two main her- heretical ideas. One, that the world was created by angels, not by God. And two, that Jesus was not the Christ. He was just a man. And the Spirit of Christ came on him for a little while, but left. Within him, all of creation and all of salvation have no proof, no evidence, no validity. So he was, he was uh, and John here is, is telling us just the opposite. That the true believer confesses who Jesus is. He's the Christ. That's, that's what he's saying. He is the anointed of God. He is the one from Isaiah 53. That's who he is. He's the one who came to seek and to save. He's the one who paid the price. And then he goes on in, verse, in the second verse, he says, By this, by this, we know that, uh, by this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and do his commandments. And basically here, he is kind of, uh, re-emphasizing and his, his previous points through this entire chapter. But he's saying, by this. And, and it's not from this. And it's not, it's, not uh, uh, it's, it's, it's an inference of that this is how it happened. It's, it's, it's a reality of what happened. He says, and what it is, is what we perceive. Uh, it's an exercise. It's not an exercise in sentimentality. Uh, to God, it's what we perceive of God that we know, and the know in this particular uh, case is gnoskos, which means to know by experience. We, having exercised faith, experience the love of God, and we understand it. It's something we know. We know about it. That's, that's what he's saying. And he, and he goes on to say, he goes to say, we know, that, and he says, by this, we know that we love the children of God. That's, that's the direction that our love is to take. Of course, it goes to God first, but it goes, out, it goes out to all of God's family as well. And he says, when we love God and do his commandments. In other words, obedience equals faith. Obedience equals love. Obedience Those three go together. Faith, love, and obedience. That's the, that's the theme of this passage. And that's what he's saying here. 
Love is demonstrated in obedience. And that obedience is demonstrated in how we treat others. How we, how we worship God and how we treat others. That's, that's, where it is, that's, that's where it is demonstrated. Vincent wrote, he says, Our perception of the existence of love to our brethren is developed on every occasion when we exercise love and obedience toward God. In other words, he's saying, obedience toward God is loving your brother. That's part of obedience toward God. That's keeping his commandments. John uh, 15 In John 15, chapter, and chapter 15, verse, verse 10, John wrote, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And in chapter 14, uh, verse 15, he wrote, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John is just simply reiterating that. That's, that's the simple truth here. Chapter Chapter 2, verse 3, he wrote, well, that's Peter. We don't want Peter. Chapter 2, verse 3, he wrote, What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you, so that you may also have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That's chapter 1, verse 3. Chapter 2, verse 3, he wrote, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. In chapter Chapter 3, verse 23, he wrote, And this is the commandment, that we believe in the name of, the, of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he gave us commandment. That's, that's, that's the consistent teaching of Scripture. The commandment keeping demonstrates our love toward God. Love toward our brothers in Christ shows the reality of the new birth, which is demonstrated in obedience. Faith results in love, which produces obedience. That's, that's the idea he is saying. He's, he's wanting us to, to understand here. And then he, he goes on, and he goes on in, into verse 3, and he says, he says this, for, the, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. That's, that's what he's telling us here. It's not a problem to keep his commandments. That's what he's telling us. Now, for the unsaved world, it certainly is. It's called legalism, uh, the the Jewish nation had adapted that. Uh, the uh, rabbis and the, the the scribes and the Pharisees had put together a, a whole list of do's and don'ts. Uh, you know, we don't have enough wall space to write them all down. And no, I'm not sure that any one person could remember all of them. Uh, but they added all of this stuff into the into the uh, into their into their belief system. And as a result of that, no one could keep it. And they had contradictory, stupid rules. They had rules about how far you could walk on a, on a Sabbath. So wealthy landowners built little outbuildings around their property so that they could walk from one to the other and not break the law. The law that wasn't the law, but nevertheless. And they had how much weight you could have in your pocket and grain or something, you know. Just silly nonsense that God never intended. That wasn't what Sabbath keeping was about. That did you walk out in the field on Sunday or on Saturday? That wasn't the idea. It was burdensome. It weighed them down. But obedience to his commands are not to be burdensome. Jesus said in Matthew 11.30, My burden is light. Take my yoke upon on you. My burden is light. 
That's the idea. Burdensome means to be grievous, heavy. It speaks of that which is severe, stern, violent, or cruel. Those are, those are the, the ideas behind this word. And Jesus says, keeping commandments is not like that, not like that at all. I'm sure for the non-believer, they think the non-believer looks at God's commandments and says, oh, that takes away from me my freedom. I can't exercise my freedom. But the reality is, the reality is, it's not burdensome. Uh, Yes, it's going to change your lifestyle. But it's not burdensome. For the child of God, there's safety in these these words. Deuteronomy, chapter 30. Verses 11 to 14. Moses wrote, For this is the commandment which I am commanding you today. It's not difficult for you, nor is it far from you. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us and get it for us and make us hear it, that we may do it. It's not beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea for us to get it, get it for us and to make us hear it, that we may do it. But the word is very near to you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. And then he, then he also wrote in Psalms. So you will get some Psalms today, just a verse, but anyway... Um, Uh, In Psalms, verse 41 through 48, uh, the psalmist wrote, May your loving kindness also come to me, O Yahweh, your salvation according to your word, so that I have an answer for him who reproaches me. For I trust in your word, and I do not take away the word of truth utterly from my mouth. For I wait on your judgments, so I keep your law continually forever and ever, and I will walk in a wide place and, and I, for, I, uh, for I seek your precepts. Uh, that, that's the idea here. And then in Romans chapter 7, verse 22, uh, Paul wrote, For I joyfully confer with the law in the inner man. It's not burdensome to serve God. That's, that's the point here. In the context of verse 3, the specific commands <coughs> of verse 1 However, uh, is this, uh, excuse me, verse 3 refers to the specific command in verse 1 of chapter 5, that is, claiming that Jesus is the Christ. But it has application to all of his precepts. It's not just confined to the context, but that is the context. Declaring who Jesus Christ is, realizing and knowing who Jesus is. And then he, then he goes on to, and he tells us now, he's going to tell us that that. Faith, love, and obedience make one an overcomer. And that's in verses 4 and 5. And he says, he says this. He says, for, <clears throat> for everything that has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is, this is the overcoming that has overcome the world, our faith. The only place he uses faith. So we'll look at verse 4 for just a minute. And here he says, everything that has been born of God, literally all who are born of God, all of those who have confessed Jesus is the Christ and all that that means. That's, that's, that's who he's, he's referring to here. He says, all the people have received the new birth. All believers universally. Understand, Gnostics saw there was a select group that had a special place. Uh, he's saying, universally, 
All of us who have accepted Jesus Christ, all of us who have declared Jesus Christ, well, we have declared him that, Jesus is the Christ. All of us who have declared that and all that it implies, uh, all who have done that are equal. There is no, no delineation between us. We have different functions, certainly, but we're all equal. We're all equal at the cross. That's, that's the point he's making here. He, he, says, and he says the person born, that's a, that's a perfect tense. It's a past action that, has, has, uh, that, is, that is a completed fact, and it has a present result. In other words, you were made a child of God, and you continue to be one. That's, that's the reality here. You were born into this family. That's who you are. Second Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 4 uh, says that we were given at the new birth, we were given the divine nature. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 12 says, at the new birth, we were made children of God. Uh, that's, that's the point here. All of us who have been born, those are the realities. We have, we have a divine nature and we are, are God's children. And he goes on to say, that person overcomes the world. That's what it means to be an overcomer, that you have, you are a believer in Jesus Christ. You have put your faith and trust in him for salvation alone. That's, that's, the, that's the overcomer. Overcome means to, uh, to be carried off, to, or excuse me, to carry off the victory, to come off victoriously. It implies a battle. And it says you're the victor. Through Christ you have become the victor. The world, of course, is the world system of evil, the flesh, the devil. That's the battlefield. Overcoming, overcomer is in a perfect tense, and it means it's a constant overcoming. It's a habitual fact of your life that while you're in this world, in this evil world, you're a constant victor. That's, that's, what, it, that's what it implies. It doesn't mean you don't stumble once in a while, but it means the pattern of your life is one of constantly overcoming. That's, that's, that's the picture he, he puts here. And he says the source of that is where we placed our faith, that Jesus is the Christ. That, that's the source. The source is not in your strength. It's not in going to the gym every day and working out and getting buff and strong, although that might not be a bad idea. I'm not going to do it, but never, it might not be a bad idea. It's that you are strong internally because the Holy Spirit resides in you and illumines to you the Word of God because you are His child. It is because you have the divine nature which corresponds with him and makes you a victor because he saved you to be a victor is the idea here. Is the idea here. And then he goes on and he says, note that, that, uh, that this, this is the overcoming that has overcome the world. John's point is the overcomer because uh, uh, because uh, the fight is in he is an overcomer because the fight is in progress. He is overcome because the victory is secured. In Vincent's in Vincent's or excuse me in Weiss commentary he wrote this he says Jesus won the victory over the world John sixteen thirty three. God is in us John, First John four four, therefore. God gives us the victory. You didn't win the victory. God did. That's the point he wants us, wants us to understand here. 
Faith in Jesus is the Son of God, God of very God. The, because of Him, because of our faith in Him, victory is secured because nothing can separate us from the love of God. Romans 8, 30, uh, uh, 37 and 39. And then he, then he gives these final words in verse 5, which serves as a bridge then to verse 6 and following. And he says this. He says, Who is the one who overcomes the world? But the one that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. He says it flat out there. There, there he has it. How did you become an overcomer? How did the overcoming become? Because of faith in Jesus Christ. This, verge, this bridges the preceding. He basically says, he asks, Who is the one who overcomes? The one who overcomes is simply this, the one who, is the, who has been born again of the Son of God, who in fact, Jesus, the Christ. That's, that's the point that he wants us to know. The one who has received new birth, regeneration, resulting from faith, which is the only means of salvation, because Jesus is the Christ. God became a man to pay the unpayable debt I owed. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone, who is the victor. The passage tells us that love equals faith, faith equals obedience, which assures that we will be overcomers. Let's close. Father God, we thank you this morning as we've looked at this text. We, we hope that it, uh, it has illumined our eyes and opened our eyes to understand all that you do in us, uh, the magnitude of, of your grace toward us, the magnitude of your love toward us, uh, and that, Father, we would, uh, we would act as children of God. The habitual pattern of our life uh, would to be loving our brethren, to loving God and loving our brethren, uh, to holding fast to the claim that Jesus is the Christ and understanding that nothing can separate us from him and give thanks for that to feel fully assured in our salvation, which he paid for us, which assured our victory and assured our entrance into eternal glory. And we thank you in his name. Amen.